The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. This is the Business Podcast. I'm Katie Allen. This week, rogue banks and rogue traders. The long-awaited report into the failure of Royal Bank of Scotland is in. The verdict? Bad management and inadequate regulation. We need to understand that a lot of what we believed about the financial system, not just in relation to RBS, but in relation to the whole financial system across the world uh, before the crisis, was wrong. But two years on, why has nobody been found legally responsible? Also this week... Masters of the universe type of stuff. It's it's where I I wanted to get to. Success was very important to me. And, you know, that's where I wanted to be at. What makes employees take massive, unauthorised gambles with their company's money? And what can banks learn about the behaviour of rogue traders from a Mexican sparrow called the yellow-eyed junco? All will be revealed. Joining me this week in the studio, Guardian banking expert Jill Trina. And on the line from New York, financial journalist and author of a new ebook on rogue traders, John Gapper. Welcome to you both. In the autumn of 2007, the Royal Bank of Scotland's Sir Fred Goodwin led a buyout of the Dutch bank ABN AMRO. RBS paid £49 billion. Fast forward a year to October 2008. Fred the Shred's reputation is in tatters and RBS has been bailed out by the government. Alistair Darling's treasury would eventually plough £45 billion into the failed bank. The long-term future of UK banks lies in the private sector and we will aim to sell the public share in the participating banks as soon as feasibly possible. But our objective today is to stabilise and rebuild, and we will maintain our stake for as long as it takes to do that. The following spring, the bank's new executives announced the UK's biggest ever corporate loss. The bank's share price hit the floor, and the British taxpayer waved goodbye to any chance of a quick return on its multi-billion pound investment. This week saw the arrival of the long-awaited report into the collapse of RBS. And according to the Financial Services Authority, the blame can be shared far and wide. Jill Trina, what caused the collapse then? And did you find there were any real surprises in the report? What caused the collapse of RBS, at least according to the FSA? At the end of the day, they ultimately say the responsibility lay with the bank's board. And clearly that has to be true. Were there any surprises in the report? I think the most interesting snippet of detail is the fact that the FSA had been watching Fred Goodwin's management style since 2003, in fact, then proved to be totally inadequate in the way it dealt with its concerns about his approach to management style. The surprise element, I guess, is that the report in many ways ends up sharing the blame amongst so many people. And I think if there's sort of one sector where the blame hasn't been shared perhaps as, as much as it might is on shareholders, where there are just a few lines where they talk about the fact that up to 95% of shareholders endorsed the takeover. And I think that's kind of quite indicative of the fact that shareholders are now trying to be, be a bit more assertive. So so there are lessons that shareholders can take from this. Or do you think they will? Do you think we'll see more 
engagement well, we've with seen, shareholders? I mean, shareholders have recently stopped a takeover bid of um, ISS. G4S wanted to buy ISSS. It's not a banking stock at all. But I think that's a sign that shareholders are now starting to take takeovers much more seriously than they did at this time. But, I mean, essentially, this report is a blame game. You know, they're passing the blame around everyone. You know, they blame the board. They, FSA blames themselves a bit. They blame themselves a bit. And, crucially, they blame the Labour government quite a lot for this light-touch approach to regulation that they say they had to take. It's actually already been called toothless in quite a few quarters. Um, Conservative MP Jesse Norman, who sits on the Treasury Select Committee, writes in The Guardian today that the FSA pulled their punches. So do you think this will be the last word on Fred Goodwin's years at RBS, or do you expect more to come? Well, it strikes me that there are two... I mean, if, if you are looking for a head and you're looking for some blood... Uh, head on a scalp or head on a pole or whatever you want to talk about. And it does seem to be Fred Goodwin's head that many people are looking for. There are only two other potential ways, I guess, if you want to cause the guy more embarrassment is one, he's a member of the, you know, he's a chartered accountant. So, you know, maybe the uh, accountant's board could strike him off if they can find that he did something that means he can't act as an accountant. And Vince Cable, the business secretary, has got the opportunity to stop people acting as company directors. Now, he's had an initial report from the FSA since February and, has, and had originally decided that there was no case to bring against the former RBS directors. Now, he says he's going to have a look again and is appointing legal counsel. Is that going to achieve anything this time round? I don't think we should be certain. And I think Lord Turner gave that impression very much yesterday that, in fact, the rules as they stand don't really allow us to do what the public seem to want, which is get ahead on a scalp. And which is why Turner is talking about trying to change the rules. John, we've had quite a few bailouts now, haven't we? Are you surprised that with all the bailouts we've had, no one has actually even come before a judge? Yes, I, I think it's it's very striking that uh, in the US and in the UK that you've had the uh, the heads of these banks, which clearly have been managed recklessly, have, have come close to collapse or have had to be bailed out. And, and very few, if not nobody among those uh, that elite has really faced either civil or criminal charges. I think the defence that Royal Bank of Scotland has put forward that, that the senior executives didn't really know about the risks they were taking, um, didn't fully grasp them. That's the common defence. Uh, it's the defence used by UBS. It's sort of the defence used by Lehman. It's like, well, with hindsight, we were taking all these risks, but at the time we thought we were doing OK. But still, it does... Jill raises this question about civil liability, and it does seem to me at some point recklessness should be at least a civil offence. Clearly, John, that that's one of the things that Lord Turner is trying to get a debate going about now, the boss of the Financial Services Authority, about, you know, should bankers in some way be held to account in a different way, be held to slightly different standards, because when they do make mistakes or be reckless, as to steal your word, you know, the reality is we, we end up bailing them out in the way that you wouldn't bail out Tesco's probably if it did some disastrous takeover of some, you know, supermarket in a country I've never heard of. Yes, it does. Yeah. I mean, I can see the difficulty in pressing criminal charges on on bankers because, you know, unless you were deliberately defrauding uh, your shareholders or, or engaged in fraud in some way or another, then it really isn't a criminal offence. But... There are responsibilities to to do with running these institutions, particularly when they're taxpayer-supported, uh, as we now discover. And it, it doesn't seem to me particularly a strange idea to actually hold people to account for, for a sense of responsibility. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is that the FSA... I'm, I'm sure, John, you haven't had the delights of this report, which I actually have in front of me and must be, I don't know, 
an inch thick, I guess. I've had the delights of reading the executive summary. Yes, indeed. Well, may I say that's very wise. But the one thing that's really fascinating, I think, is that they, you know, they spend the last quarter of an inch justifying why they haven't brought action against anybody. And I think one of the things that they have a problem with, and I'm, it's fascinating, that RBS doesn't actually seem to have broken any rules. You know, it didn't break its capital rules. Its capital level was 2%, it turns out, but it didn't actually break the rules of the day. It's, it's a very difficult, difficult, difficult story, I think. And that's something you brought up, Jill. You, you talked about the, the light-touch approach that the Labour Party was known for at the time. And, and, John, perhaps a question to you. As far as I remember, there wasn't much political opposition to that light-touch approach on either side of the Atlantic, was there? No, I don't think there really was. I mean, there was a more rules-based approach in the US, a more bureaucratic approach to regulation, but there wasn't, broadly speaking, a sense that these banks were doing something, you know, needed to be very tightly controlled. Indeed, Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, you know, talked very much in those terms about about a new financial era and that banks' own economic self-interest being enough to, to limit them from taking risks because they knew what they were doing. So I don't think it was unusual. And in, indeed, even in Basel, where the you know, international bank regulators uh, were meeting, the whole Basel II capital rules were essentially a relaxation, were saying that banks should be allowed to calculate their own risks. I think everybody has now really changed their minds and has sort of said, well, it turns out that these guys really can't, it's not just that they can't be trusted, but it's that they don't even know what's in their own interests, it turns out, um, or certainly what's in the interests of their shareholders. It's interesting as well, in, in the RBS report uh, that the FSA has done, it's interesting, there's actually a, a reference to a letter written by the then boss of the FSA, Callum McCarthy, to Tony Blair, who was the Prime Minister at the time, trying to reassure him that in fact the UK, and I'm quoting from this, applies to the supervision of its largest banks, only a fraction of the resource applied by US regulators to banks of equivalent size and importance. And there is this number in this report that I I became fixated by lots of numbers in this report yesterday. But one of them is the fact that at one point uh, in the run up to the crisis, RBS had the equivalent of 4.5 supervisors regulating it and 0.5 of a manager is included in that because they merged the supervisory teams of RBS and Barclays, which I, I just sort of think tells you a lot about the way the system was regulated at the time. And RBS has now got 23 people regulating it. Now, look, I'm not saying people is what matters, but it does feel as if there's more resource involved in regulating banks now than there was before. Talking of people who perhaps can't be trusted, let's turn now to the subject of John Gapper's new book, How to Be a Rogue Trader. This year, we saw the Swiss bank UBS take a huge hit to its balance sheet, its share price and its reputation when a scandal emerged surrounding an alleged rogue trader, Kwaku Adeboli. In this case, the law was very quickly involved. At 1am this morning, the City of London Police were contacted by UBS about an allegation of fraud by one of their employees. And at 3.30am, detectives from our force arrested a 31-year-old man on suspicion of fraud by abusive position. This case was merely the latest in a long line. Nick Leeson famously brought down Bearings Bank. More recently, Jerome Kerviel was jailed for three years and ordered to repay the 4.9 billion euros he is said to have lost on behalf of French bank Socgen. In many of these rogue trader cases, there seems to have been only minor checks that could have been put in place at minimal cost to the bank. So John, why does this keep happening? 
Yeah, it's very striking if you go back to the Nick Leeson case, uh, 1995 now, that at the time uh, it seemed really baffling that, uh, that Bearings could have allowed this to happen. And it seemed like an aberration. And now we just see these, we've seen these repeated cases over the past two decades, really very similar, very similar individuals, very similar sorts of deceptions. And, and in many ways, particularly, for example, the, uh, the alleged uh, involvement of Adeboli and Kerville, they're very, very similar deceptions. So, you know, w- what's been going on? And one of the things I've looked at in this uh, this ebook is really what's the underlying motivation for these traders to essentially take huge risks, put themselves under an enormous amount of strain for very little personal gain, actually. In, in none of the big cases have these individuals been found to be actually making money for themselves by hiding the profits from their from their schemes. Uh, their bonuses might have been getting somewhat bigger, but essentially it wasn't really worth it. And... I looked at some of the sort of some of the work in evolutionary biology and in psychology, and it's very interesting. You have these cases you mentioned before of these uh, these junco sparrows, which were studied by by biologists, and they looked at and and other species as well, and they looked at what happens when these birds or insects when they're looking for food. And if they're, it turns out that if they're well fed, if they're feeling okay, they tend to go to the places where they know they're going to get a certain amount of food fairly certainly. But as soon as they are in a state of hunger or cold or they're feeling stressed, in a way the kind of animal equivalent of, of losing money, they start to gamble. They start to to go to places to look for their food where they might there's a quite a big risk they'll get nothing but if they do get something they're going to get a large amount and that instinct to gamble when you're in trouble seems to be very deeply rooted in in animals and also in human psychological tests the same syndrome has come out so someone like nick leeson it would have been against the backdrop of a situation that got worse first you think that might have been one of the main drivers is this son of yeah, the equivalent of being cold and hungry in the sparrow world. Exactly. And in the Leeson case, I think he'd made some relatively small trades. And, and it's a very common syndrome, I think, with traders, not just road traders, but, but any trader. You, you take some bets and they go against you. And the textbook thing to do is to go to your boss or, you know, just to declare that you've made this loss and move on. But of course, it's a bit humiliating and maybe it's going to affect your bonus. It's certainly going to affect your status among the other traders on the trading floor. You know, you don't look successful. And there's an incredibly strong human compulsion to kind of hide it for a little bit and see if you can just trade out of it. And I think that happens an awful lot. But in the case of these famous rogue traders, they take it to incredible extremes. They they start gambling, as Leeson did and Kerville did, and then they make more losses, and then they keep covering it up, and the hole gets bigger and bigger, and the gambling gets bigger and bigger. And two years later, or three years later, they find themselves with these billion-dollar losses, or they might even bring down the bank. Do you think it says anything about the culture of banks, John, you know, in terms of the types of the banks they are or or the, the other thing that I've always wondered about and is this idea that it's it's kind of human to not want to admit you've messed up isn't it i mean Precisely. you know yeah. But, yeah well i think that actually what what banks do and 
is they they do encourage this sort of behavior. Clearly, if they knew that there was a fraudster out there and was hiding a billion dollar hole in their balance sheet, they'd do something about it. But but at a but at a broader level, they encourage risk taking behavior. They through the bonus system, they want people to compete to take to take risk. I remember um, I co-authored a book about bearings and and. Christopher Heath, was a head, who was the head of Bearing Securities, the, uh, the investment banking side, specifically talked about wanting hungry traders, rather, rather like, uh, rather like rather sparrows. Like sparrows. <laughs> he, he, re- he said, I want people who are hungry. I, I don't want people who are going to be satisfied with making a certain amount of money and then go, go and kind of save the rest of their lives. I want people who are going to be aggressive. And I think that banks encourage this but at the same time, they want to kind of put checks to kind of make sure it doesn't get out of control. But but often those checks simply aren't good enough. Joel, you've covered quite a few of these rogue trader cases and, and just not as many as John, I don't think. But, <laughs> but just thinking about what we were saying there about, you know, bearings looking for people who are hungry. Is there anything that marks out the banks involved in, in your experience? Is there anything that sort of they have in common, perhaps? To me, and I'm not claiming to be the expert that Mr Gapper is on this point, but I mean, to me, they've always been the banks that have been fighting to get somewhere, that have been trying to push themselves uh, you know, trying to get themselves known. So you think about bearings. It was you know, it was a big. It was well known in the in the derivatives world actually for that sort of bit of niche it did. But it was it was always trying to be something else. John, do you think it was always trying to move up the rankings? A bit like UBS wanted to be doing something bigger and better than it is. I, it's a very simplistic yeah, no, I, approach. I think that's absolutely yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. And I think there's almost uh, you know a parallel between the rogue trader and the and the rogue institution, so to speak, that they are they're wanting to take bigger risks. And you had, you know, all of these banks in different ways, from bearings to UBS and SOCGEN, which were sort of in the process of trying to transform themselves from being traditional retail banks into being investment banks. They're often outside institutions that are kind of trying to go up the pecking order. And although these sort of incidents could clearly happen at the sort of top-ranked Wall Street firms, they don't seem to allow it to get out of control in the same way. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Um, you can read a lot more in John Gapper's new ebook, How to Be a Rogue Trader, which is available online from Penguin. Many thanks to him and to The Guardian's Jill Trina. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Katie Allen, and thanks for listening. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.